When two people meet, they usually find something to bond over, like their love for movies or snowboarding. For Amber and Diana, it was their mutual love of bugs. I quickly found out that, like, she was super into entomology, and I was super charmed by that. I was just like, oh my gosh, she's rattling off Latin names. Like, oh, that's so cool. (laughs) That's Amber. Here's Diana. When you grow up as a kid and you've got, like, these things you like that are pretty nerdy, it's kind of lonely. (laughs) So finding someone who's equally into it, you know, we can be weird together. It was more than just bugs. It was nature in general. The outdoors had been a haven for both of them growing up. They'd met in college and would skip class to hike trails. They'd spend their weekends identifying plants and bugs and mushrooms. A few months into dating, Diana found a half-decomposed deer skull and brought it to Amber, you know, hoping it would impress her. How did she react? I think deep inside, her heart grew several sizes. After dating for about a year, Amber proposed. At that time, same-sex marriage was illegal in most states. They had to wait six years until the Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage is a constitutional right. Within a month of the ruling, they exchanged vows in front of a small group of friends and family on the steps of a courthouse. Just on principle, the whole thing was very much on principle. You know, we didn't need to get married, but we wanted to because it's such a symbolic thing. I was just so relieved that it was finally happening. Our signatures were on this paperwork. Like, it was actually, like, the real deal. Diana wore a flannel shirt, Amber a tank top and a skirt, and their wedding cake was a pint of ice cream. I do remember, like, one of my vows was the in-sickness and in-health because, obviously, that was very important to me. She knew I was a rough piece of work. Yep. (laughs) I knew what I was getting into. (laughs) Amber had been diagnosed with a painful bladder condition when she was young. There was no cure, and they knew it would mean expensive treatments and doctor appointments for the rest of her life. But marriages come with all kinds of challenges, even the best of them. These two were ready to face it all, for richer, for poor, and sickness and health. That is, until they ran into the one thing that could threaten a once-in-a-lifetime love. Government bureaucracy. I'm Rima Khreis, and welcome to This is Uncomfortable, a show for Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. People with disabilities can sometimes face a tough trade-off between marriage and healthcare. This week, we follow Amber and Diana into a hell of bureaucracy that's forced them to redefine what commitment really means. Amber's dream job was to work for the National Park Service. She imagined a lifetime of hiking through national parks, a large tour group trailing behind her as she pointed out bird habitats and rare plant species. She enrolled in a four-year program to become a naturalist, but about a year in, she suddenly couldn't focus that well. It's like a whole body just feeling of like your insides are just ooze and you're just Mm. completely exhausted. And I was just like slumped over at my desk, like, (laughs) unable to absorb any information. Her body, it just felt weak. My knees were giving me a lot of trouble. I stopped being able to use stairs at school, so I knew something was going on with that, and I was getting frustrated. And it just kept getting worse. Everyday activities, like brushing her hair or cooking, felt incredibly painful. 
it was difficult for me to push a knife down through a vegetable, you know? Yeah. Or, or you know, to fill up a, a pot full of water to get it on the boil, you know? Her wife, Diana, tried helping as much as she could. So she was, like, not only, you know, having to be the sole worker, but also starting to take care of the chores and the cooking and all of that, so... Although you do make coffee for me every morning. <laughs> yep, I still make coffee in the morning. <laughs> By that point, Amber had already been dealing with health problems. When she was 16, she was diagnosed with a chronic bladder condition known as interstitial cystitis. It basically inflames and irritates the inner wall of your bladder, makes it so that you have to go to the bathroom frequently. And if you wait, it can cause extreme pain. And it can be usually a few minutes if it's like a flare-up before, you know, it starts getting painful enough to where I'm crying. But what she was experiencing now, the muscle pain, the exhaustion, it felt different. She learned that she developed a disorder that weakens your connective tissues, which is really painful, can even make it so your joints dislocate easily. Still, Amber had been doing really well in her program. She was on her way to that national park dream, and she was determined to not let her health get in the way. Halfway through her degree, her class announced a 10-day intense wilderness backpacking trip that they'd go on that spring. And I was terrified because I'm like, surely they're going to have to carry me out on a stretcher for this. She wanted to prove herself, though. So every day for a month, she'd train for the trip, building up strength. She would stuff a backpack with shoes and knickknacks to practice carrying weight. And Diana would join her as she practiced walking long distances. Sometimes we would walk on the trail near our house. Um, but a lot of times, just because of the nature of my condition, we actually went into town and walked in um, like a sports facility because I knew there were restrooms there. When the time came for the trip, Amber was feeling pretty optimistic. By that point, she could carry a 40-pound pack a long way. She said goodbye to Diana and set out with her classmates. It started off well. She was keeping up with everyone, feeling okay. But then the problems started to creep back in. I started having difficulty with my knees. Like, it was starting to be really painful to carry my backpack. How have you explained the pain to people? It just kind of feels like razor blades in my knees. <laughs> mm. But still, she did not want to quit. So I was getting bandanas and, like, putting them in a lake and getting them cold and wet and putting those around my knees mm. to, try to, to try to help soothe that. She had brought trekking poles to try to take some of the weight off. But one day, about midway through the trip, her knees just couldn't hold weight anymore. She could barely walk. And um, my professor basically just had people divvy up the stuff that was in my pack so that, you know, my pack was a lot lighter. So so I could make yeah. it back okay. Yeah. In the end, Amber was proud of herself for making it through the trip. But she was not okay. Her body was in terrible pain. When she got home, she knew she needed help. She set out to find better diagnoses, to get x-rays, MRIs, new treatments, something, anything that would allow her to regain her mobility. But by the end of the next semester, her other medical issue, you know, the bladder problems, also started to get worse. Here's her wife, Diana. I remember it was winter and we drove out to this area to go snowshoeing and we were there for probably like 15 minutes and Amber was like, I need to go. We need to go home. My bladder is just killing me. This is just not going to work. Mm. And I remember at the time I was like pretty frustrated, not like resentful, just frustrated. 
being outdoors, that's how they'd fallen in love. Diana wasn't mad that more and more Amber couldn't just be out there with her. She was just sad. Neither of them wanted to give in to the reality of what was becoming more clear. Some days, Amber would have to run to the bathroom nearly every five minutes. Other days, she'd try to hold out, resist asking for help, and then just end up hurting herself. Even during this interview, Amber had a hard time chatting for a long stretch of time. We had several shorter conversations over a few weeks. With just one year left of her naturalist program, Amber decided she had to withdraw from school and rethink her life. I was going to be this naturalist working with the national parks, and then I had to change my mindset to, I'm going to be a person who's on disability benefits, and that's going to be my life. I remember being really depressed because I had to lose the career that I was planning on having. The life she'd envisioned, that she and Diana had envisioned together, was just no longer possible. So they started making a new life, one where Diana did the physical work, you know, made the bed and put heavy pots away. And Amber became more of the logistics person, handling taxes, coordinating moves, organizing her doctor's appointments. And, you know, it wasn't so hard to divvy up basic life tasks like that. What was harder to divvy up was making money. It's like I could never predict if I was going to be able to function or not on any given day. And that inherently kind of makes you unemployable. <laughs> I think I started to realize, you know, once once she had to drop out of her classes that, you know, well, it's going to fall mainly on me. They'd already lived a pretty Spartan life, decorating their cabin with Amber's art, wearing thrift clothes, cooking at home. But there was still rent and car payments and utility bills to worry about. Diana found a job working at a food co-op, but it only paid $12.50 an hour. Amber needed weekly physical therapy to manage her pain. It cost thousands of dollars a year. Amber had a health care plan through Diana's parents, but between the premium and co-pays, the costs were pretty steep. So Amber decided to apply for disability benefits, which would mean she could get health care coverage and some cash assistance. Disability benefits exist for moments like this, to fill in the gap when people just can't work. They cover a range of people, from the elderly to those with serious developmental disorders, to people like Amber, whose challenges are physical. But Amber's chances of getting these benefits were not great. About 65% of all disability applicants are denied at just the initial stage. It's expected that you're going to be denied the first time um, mm. pretty much no matter what. And in my case, like, the younger you are, the more likely they are to reject it. Amber and Diana braced themselves, filled out a 20-page application that assessed both her disability and their financial situation, and then... They waited, hopeful about the big ways this might change their lives, but not realizing the small ways it would, too. That's after the break. Amber and Diana finally finished the long, tedious application to get disability benefits. They were deep in the waiting game, when one day they decided to go birding. Winter had just ended, and, you know, it was like the first nice day of the year, and we drove out to the park. And there's an accessible boardwalk there, and so, you know, that was my first time getting out in months. 
It felt so refreshing to just be outside and together. At one point, Amber even spotted a rare bird, a loggerhead shrike. So she took a picture and posted it later to this birding listserv she belonged to. Figured her fellow birders would get excited about it. But instead, she got an angry phone call. The caseworker who was monitoring her disability application was also on that listserv. And he called me and was furious. And he said, you can't be disabled. If you can get out and see a bird, you can work. It was horrifying. It felt like he was accusing her of lying to get on disability. And that he was saying if she was able-bodied enough to sit on a bench and look for birds, she was able-bodied enough to hold down a job. And that completely shattered me. Like, I was terrified to be anywhere on the internet. I deleted everything and, like, just felt the need to completely hide. That was a very important moment as far as, like, my distrust of this entire thing. This one small pleasure of hers, one of the few things she could do outdoors, she stopped doing that. Eventually, she was afraid of just being seen outside her house. And she changed her name on social media. We've also changed Amber and Diana's names to protect their privacy. Several weeks later, Amber got a letter saying she did not qualify for disability benefits. She has no idea if the birding incident had anything to do with it. They hired a lawyer to appeal. And if they won the case, they'd pay her using any back payments they'd get from disability benefits. After they appealed, a year passed. Then two years. And still nothing. Throughout the process, Amber was advised to not work so it wouldn't disqualify her from getting benefits. She felt like the system was setting up this kind of false dichotomy. If you can do anything, even sitting on a bench outdoors, then you're able-bodied and you can work. You don't need our help. Or if you do in fact need the help, then you should prove it by staying put and avoiding any type of work. There's a spectrum of disability, and Amber feels like the system isn't set up to accommodate that. You're just trying to live your life and, like, do something to contribute. And just because somebody can, like, sweep their front porch maybe once a month or something, that doesn't mean they can do it every day. Diana's food co-op job only gave her a bit over 20000 a year to support them both. She had already been frugal, but now she was counting literally every penny she made and spent. When you're the only, like, earner, it does make you hyper-aware of, like, how many hours have I worked? How am I going to pay for car insurance and these three different utility bills, that kind of thing. There were so many things outside of their control at that point. But the one thing they could control and the one thing they didn't want to let crumble was their relationship. By then, Amber's condition had worsened. She rarely ever left the house. They couldn't really do the one thing that had always brought them together, being out in nature. So they decided, we're going to bring the outdoors inside. They just moved to the Southwest, hoping the warm weather would be good for Amber's health. A friend gave them free housing, which was huge. In that new house, they mounted deer antlers and some of Amber's paintings on the walls. And they transformed the living room into a kind of dreamy shrine for the natural world they both loved. Behind me, there's two bookshelves um, with, let's see, one, two, three, four. (laughs) There's over 200 potted plants on there. (laughs) Whoa, over 200? (laughs) Yeah. And of course, the effect would not be complete without wildlife. I counted recently, I think I have 13 or 14 tarantulas and probably another dozen or two other spiders. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, it's very peaceful and calming and like 
They're kind of basically hairy pet rocks. Their new home acted as a sort of wilderness by proxy, a sanctuary they could share while they waited, hoping Amber would get disability benefits. Finally, three years after the appeal, Amber's day in court had arrived. In March of 2019, she was scheduled to appear in front of a judge to make her case for why she needed disability benefits. I remember that, Amber, you you had been advised to dress as, quote, poor-looking as possible. Yep. So your lawyer advised you to, to dress down? Yeah, yeah. They say to wear stuff like, like sweatpants and stuff, which I don't even own because when I started really getting sick, um, I actually started dressing up more because it makes me feel better. She put on an old cardigan and went to the courthouse downtown. I was really, really nervous. I was like ready to break down into tears in the, mm. in the courtroom. Um, I was really worried about my interstitial cystitis because, you know, I was afraid it was going to be this like hour long hearing. Which, you know, when you have to go to the bathroom every five minutes is a problem. But after three years of waiting for this hearing. It actually ended up only being a few minutes. It was very <laughs> quick. Amber and Diana drove around while they waited for an update from their lawyer. And then my lawyer called me directly after and told me what happened. She first of all explained to me that the ruling was not as much in my favor as I had been hoping. Amber had been partially approved for something called Supplemental Security Income, or SSI. She had applied for a different program called Social Security Disability Insurance, or SSDI, Basically, both programs offer certain health care benefits and some cash. But the one she was granted, SSI, is specifically for people with low incomes to help them meet basic needs for food, clothing, and shelter. After three years of waiting, it felt like a small victory, even if it was a different program. There was a big sense of relief. Yeah, um, I was just relieved that she had gotten something In that moment, Amber felt like, finally, she'd be able to contribute, maybe chip in on bills, or at least Diana wouldn't have to stress if she missed a shift at work. And it'd mean her health care was covered. SSI would grant Amber Medicaid, the national health care program for people who are low-income. But then, the lawyer said something that completely threw them off. Um... And then, you know, having the lawyer immediately say, you you need to get divorced if you actually want to get something out of this because you're going to be able to get more benefits if you get divorced. They just looked at each other like, I'm sorry, we were filing for disability benefits. No one said anything about a divorce. What does a divorce have to do with anything? It's more complicated than this, but here's the gist. To get monthly payments and health care under SSI, you have to stay under the poverty line. Amber had been making almost no money for years by then, but the government didn't see it that way because she's married. That wedding vow, what's mine is yours and yours is mine, that's literally how the government sees it when it comes to SSI. In the government's mind, Diana's salary was also Amber's. So the lawyer was advising them to get divorced because if Diana made a dollar above the poverty line, Amber would lose the benefits. But Amber and Diana tried to put it out of their minds. Getting a divorce just seemed so extreme. I've got, like, this, like, coping mechanism of, like, ignoring something until it becomes a problem. 
I'm kind of well known for this at home. It's don't look at it and it's not going to be a problem. They hadn't been told yet exactly how much cash benefit Amber would get. It would be based not just on Amber's income, but Diana's too. So the government, it started to intensely track Diana's income. They gave me the stack of pre-addressed envelopes and said, okay, you are going to put your bi-weekly pay stubs in this each month and mail them in. It's just like someone's breathing down your neck. Yeah. With a magnifying glass. The government then looks at how much money Diana makes every paycheck, calculates what percentage of this should go to Amber's needs, and then based on that number, decides how much cash to give them. The average monthly SSI payment in their state is about $575. But when they got their first check... I remember my first payment, they they told me I was going to get $16. And I remember just... What? (laughs) Being like, I went through all of that for $16 a month. Every month after that payment, they say they would get somewhere between $100 to $200 in assistance. And even if they could scrimp and save on that little money, the program doesn't let them. As part of getting benefits, Amber and Diana cannot have more than $2,000 in their bank account at any time. $2,000. That is a number that hasn't changed since 1989. With inflation, the equivalent value today would be over 4000 Some lawmakers have been pushing for reform, like one bill would allow people to save up to $10,000. It's been introduced every session for nearly a decade, but hasn't gone anywhere. You can't save up for something horrible that might happen to you, right? You know, your car breaks down or you need to replace your car. You can't have that money to deal with that. It's like our government wants to keep us in a state of abject, complete poverty in order to get any sort of health care. And in theory, the idea of government assistance is that with some help, people can eventually make their way out of poverty and won't need benefits anymore. But a lot of people get trapped in this middle space like Diana and Amber, the valley between poverty and financial independence, where if you tiptoe just over the poverty line, you can lose your benefits. But you're still nowhere near financial independence. One medical emergency or car breakdown, and you're back in poverty especially with Amber's benefits. You're effectively not allowed to save for emergencies. Experts say it can become a kind of poverty trap, where the system itself keeps people stuck in it. The one clear good news about her benefits was the health insurance, the fact that she got Medicaid, in large part because Amber desperately needs surgery. Her bladder condition had gotten so bad that doctors wanted to remove her bladder. Out of pocket, that would cost about $20,000. But with Medicaid, the surgery would be free. Amber was stoked. So this would um, drastically improve my quality of life. Oh, wow. So how will this change your life? Extremely. (laughs) Like, I'll be able to go out. Um, The other day I realized I'll be able to go to a movie theater (laughs) and see a movie when everyone else does. Because you'll be able to sit there for a long period of time. Yeah. Um, whereas before, like, even just the, the loud sound, the vibrations in the movie theater would um, set it off. And I would be running to the bathroom every five minutes and be missing the movie anyway. She'll have to wear a stoma bag and will still have the joint problems. But it could give her back so much of her life. She could go on road trips and maybe even hike again with Diana. But then, 
months before the surgery, last August, Amber got a notice in the mail. They had been kicked off of SSI because of Diana's income. Even though Diana had been cutting back her hours to try to limit the risk of bringing COVID back home to Amber, she'd still have been working too much. They very suddenly decided that she had been making too much for the last eight months. This meant no more Medicaid, which now meant that the surgery was likely not going to happen. Remember, without insurance, it would cost about $20,000, basically Diana's entire year's salary. And not only would they no longer get cash benefits, but the government wanted them to give the money back from the months when Diana's income was over the limit. We had to repay $2,600 in benefits that they had sent. Money they didn't have because of that $2,000 savings limit. It was like the government had blocked all the exits. Any avenue for getting out of this mess could get them further trapped in it. And they were both just exhausted. So, like, you can appeal for it, but it's like, at this point, I'm so tired of fighting and being degraded and having my privacy invaded. I was like, just give them the money and be done with it. They put the $2,600 payment on a credit card. In one last-ditch effort, they decided to apply for Medicaid an easier way, independently of SSI. So just health care, no disability cash benefits. They were approved within just a few weeks. Sure, they couldn't get the monthly cash payments, but at least they could get back their health care. And Diana could keep her job. And their lawyer was wrong. They could stay married. To me, a divorce seemed like something that we didn't have to worry about, and it wouldn't have to happen. So I know that there's been a lot to follow, so I just want to quickly recap everything. First, Amber applied for disability benefits. She got rejected. She appealed, waited three years, then finally got it. After a year and a half, they got kicked off of that because Diana was making too much money. So then they applied for just Medicaid. They got that. They celebrated. But it is not over yet. This last January... Amber sat down to do their taxes. She was sitting in their kitchen, and when she looked at Diana's W-2, her heart sank. Diana had made $24,500 before taxes last year, about $1,500 more than the limit for Medicaid coverage in their state. Diana was at work when she got panic texts from Amber asking about her income. Okay, well, what did you make? What, what is that? Where is that document? Can you get me your W-2 back and forth until it was just kind of like, oh, crap, like where it became obvious that there was a problem. When Diana walked in the door, they immediately embraced each other and burst into tears. We were hugging, which, you know, we're just trying to limit contact right now with COVID, but it kind of just like broke at that point. They haven't filed taxes yet but they know the government reassesses their Medicaid eligibility at least once a year. And by crossing the poverty line, even just by 100 bucks a month, they could lose Amber's health insurance. So we're currently still on it, but at some point we're going to be reassessed. So mm. it's in a very precarious situation right now. They don't know when they'll be reassessed, and they're afraid to ask. Getting kicked off would mean Amber would lose a surgery she's now been anticipating for a year. This surgery is very, very important to me. And um, I was really frightened that I was going to miss out on it again. 
and um, not to mention have no idea how I would get it covered in the future. They thought about going on Diana's work health insurance, but the premium and co-pays are incredibly high. So they prowled disability message boards, talked to a lawyer, and even had a cousin who worked for Health and Human Services go through all the government programs. But they couldn't find a surefire way to keep their Medicaid, and they worried that any other program wouldn't offer the health care Amber needs. So after many conversations and a lot of tears, they made their decision. They would get a divorce. I talked to my mom and <laughs> she just didn't seem to understand. And she's like, well, just, just file your taxes separately. And I'm like, no, that, that's not, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. And I was trying not to get too frustrated with her because that's, that's probably what like the typical person would say was, oh, there has to be some way out of this. It just doesn't seem right. The just world fallacy. Yep, exactly. There must be something you can do because this isn't right, and uh, it's just not the case right now. The way Amber and Diana see it, the easiest and least expensive way for Amber to stay covered is to separate herself legally from Diana's income. They're just exhausted with the bureaucratic mess that comes with both being married and dealing with disability benefits. It was just kind of like this like kind of hollow realization that everything that we had, you know, fought for, you know, to get together was about to have to be, like, kind of thrown out. Their plan is to fill out the divorce paperwork in the next month or two so that Amber can keep Medicaid as an individual and not have to worry that Diana's income will count against her. All of their choices right now feel like bad ones. We have to decide, you know, do you want to stay in poverty and get health care or... <laughs> Do you want to keep trying to, to make your way in the world and then not have health care? The whole thing is incredibly complicated. Lawyers and experts we spoke to said that sometimes there's discounted income, which means you can earn over the limit and keep your eligibility. And sometimes there's fine print that can help couples stay married and keep their benefits. But it depends on the case and the state you live in. That might help explain why in the last decade, People with disabilities got divorced at twice the rate they've gotten married. That's according to census data. Some people with disabilities who we've talked to said they've just avoided getting married because of the risk to their benefits. In fact, when Amber started learning more about this, reaching out to people online, she kept hearing the same thing from other people on disability. Oh yeah, everyone knows that marriage can threaten your disability benefits. Amber and Diana have spent the last decade playing by rules that don't feel designed to accommodate them. And now, as they get ready to use a loophole neither of them ever wanted, it's almost like they're back at square one, living in a world that won't let them get married, or at least one in which the penalties for marriage don't feel worth it. I mean, I've always put Amber's health as one of my priorities, you know, for everything. So it's just like, if we have to give up this like age-old institution, so be it. They didn't want us anyway. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want us anyway. <laughs> well, it's like in a way you're calculating like the best way to honor your vows is to essentially break the official union. Yep. Yeah. For most people, divorce represents an official seal that a relationship is broken. 
But Amber and Diana see it as the most concrete gesture of care. And at least with one another, out of earshot of the government, they plan to keep calling each other wife. All right, that is all for this week's show. We'll have a new episode next week. And if you ever want to drop us a note, share your thoughts or your stories, you can email me and the team at uncomfortable at marketplace.org. Also, if you have not already, you should subscribe to our newsletter. It's got a lot of stuff in there that you're not going to find on this podcast. You can check it out by subscribing at marketplace.org slash comfort. This is Uncomfortable is me, Rima Khreis, Megan Dietry, Haley Hirschman, Peter Balanon-Rosen, and Camila Kerwin. Camila Kerwin is the lead producer for this episode. Our editor is Karen Duffin. Our intern is Mark Haygreen. Tony Wagner is our digital producer. Sound design and audio engineering by Drew Jostad. Special thanks this week to Leonardo Cuello, the director of health policy at the National Health Law Program, Rachel Garfield, the vice president at Kaiser Family Foundation, and disability advocates Dominic Evans and Lori Long. Also thanks this week to Daisy Palacios, Stephanie Hughes, and Caitlin Esch. Satara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand, and our theme music is by Wonderly. All right, I'll catch y'all next week. <laughs>